Introduction, approximately two minutes, five seconds. Welcome to the David Wills House of the Gettysburg National Military Park Audio Description Tour. Please take a moment to listen to this brief introduction before you begin your exploration of this historic home. There are over 80 minutes of recorded audio segments available describing the house exhibits and features. The tour is organized to follow a recommended route for our exhibits, but if you wish, you may visit the various rooms and exhibits in any order. Your player is designed to automatically play the appropriate recording as you visit each area. Please direct your attention to your audio tour player. The player is a palm-sized unit. Please hold it so the cord attached to your earpiece emerges from a socket at the top right side of the receiver. On its face is a screen. Below it are your control buttons. On the far left is a diamond-shaped button that was pressed to activate this recording. To its right is a square button, the pause or resume function. Simply touch this button to pause the recording. Pressing it again will resume your tour. To the right of the pause resume button is a set of five buttons. Four curved or crescent-shaped buttons surrounding a circular button. Pressing the top or left curved buttons enables you to go back to the previous section. Pressing the bottom or right curved buttons will advance the tour to the next section. Finally, two triangular buttons are to the right. These are your volume controls. The first, facing left, is pressed to lower volume, while the second, facing right, is used to raise the volume. Before we continue, please note that restrooms and a water fountain are available in a hallway just to the right of the information desk where you received your audio tour player. As you turn away from the desk to the right and move about 10 feet, the hallway is on the left. On the left side of the hallway, the water fountain is before the men's room. The women's room is straight ahead. This concludes the introduction to the tour. For descriptions of the Wills House exhibits, press the crescent-shaped buttons to hear the available options and the circle to start the audio description. Orientation. As you entered the Wills House, the outside door opened to a small foyer with a wooden floor. A glass partition in the area is decorated with an image of the house exterior, with its roof line and windows represented by simple white blocks or strokes. Words imprinted on the glass read, The David Wills House home and law office of David Wills, and guest house for President Abraham Lincoln's historic 1863 visit. Mounted on the wall behind the information desk are two enlarged photographs. On the left is a sepia-toned image of the front of the Wills house. Signage reads, This house was built in 1816, and David Wills called it home from 1859 to 1894. On the right is another sepia-toned photograph, its signage reads, A view of York Street in front of the Wills House in the latter part of the 19th century. From a position facing the information desk, behind you, to the left and right of the doorway you use to enter this area, 
are shelves featuring souvenirs and books. As you tour the house, please feel free to ask for assistance. Someone is always available at the information desk where you received your audio tour player. Please let us know how we can make your visit as comfortable as possible. To continue with the tour, please turn so that your back is to the information desk. The next tour section, the Wills Parlor, begins in a hallway on the opposite side of the glass partition in the foyer. Please proceed through a second doorway to your left. You'll notice the flooring shift from carpet to wood. Will's Parlor Entranceway, 1 minute and 10 seconds. The entrance to the Will's Parlor is just through another doorway on the other side of this hallway. A sign to the right, mounted on the wall, features another photo of the house exterior and a photo portrait of David Will's, a man with a full beard and wide-open, dark eyes. Under his photo is a quote from a letter Will's wrote to President Lincoln on November 2nd, 1863. It will be a source of great satisfaction to the many widows and orphans that have been made almost friendless by the great battle here to have you here personally. Additional text introduces us to the Wills House. In July 1863, the American Civil War came to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Four months later, President Abraham Lincoln followed to honor the fallen. This is where he stayed during that historic visit. Here you will experience life with the Wills family as the Battle of Gettysburg threatened their home. You will learn how a simple invitation from David Wills resulted in the most famous speech in American history, the Gettysburg Address. You will stand in the room where President Lincoln revised the Gettysburg Address and explore why that speech still resonates today. Will's Parlor Exhibits Approximately 3 minutes 45 seconds Please move through the doorway to the Will's Parlor. The room is about 15 feet square with tall windows shaded by reproductions of images depicting the area surrounding the house and the surrounding community as it looked in the 19th century. In the middle of the room is a carpeted section with two low benches, you can sit there as an audio-described motion-activated film plays on a monitor in a gold frame above a white fireplace mantle at left. It will begin as you enter the parlor. You may wish to pause this recording while the film plays. On the wall just to the left as you entered the parlor is the first of a series of informational panels in the room. It is labeled A Crossroads Town. It portrays an 1859 map of Adams County and the roads leading in and out of Gettysburg. Also on the panel is a street view photograph taken from the Gettysburg Town Square. The text continues. James Gettys founded the town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania in 1786. A substantial and modern town by the standards of 1860 America, it had some paved roads, running water, and even gas works initiated by none other than David Wills. Gettysburg was a center of agriculture and commerce, with tanneries and a healthy carriage industry. 
It boasted eight churches, six taverns, two banks, three weekly newspapers, a college, and a seminary. The town was ready for even more growth and expansion, fed by a rail line and ten major roads that all came together in the town square. The very roads that carried commodities in and out of town drew contesting armies. The battle that resulted forever changed this place. In 1860, Gettysburg citizens had strong political factions and three local newspapers that voiced their concerns, each affiliated with the politics of its editor. David Wills was a Republican, most likely identified with the Adams Sentinel, and was actively involved in the campaigns for President Lincoln and Pennsylvania Governor Andrew Curtin. From this sign, please turn around 180 degrees and move just to the other side of the doorway. We will proceed counterclockwise around the parlor. The next informational panel here is labeled, War Comes to Town. This placard displays a sketch of a barricade constructed at the railroad depot. It was drawn immediately following the battle. Also depicted is a photograph of the Gettysburg skyline, featuring the Wills House. We learn that David Wills led citizens up to his roof to see some of the fighting. Text on this panel reads, On July 1, 1863, Union and Confederate forces clashed north and west of Gettysburg. At first, curious citizens ventured toward the battlefield or clambered onto rooftops to glimpse the action. Most retreated to their cellars when fighting intensified, missing the withdrawal of Union troops through the streets and the raising of a Confederate flag over the town square. Confederate soldiers would occupy the town for more than two days. For three days, fighting raged in local places now made famous the world over, Culp's Hill, Little Round Top, Seminary Ridge, and Cemetery Hill. Finally, on July 3rd, a mass Confederate assault, known today as Pickett's Charge, failed, and the battle ended. As the Confederate army began its retreat the next day, thousands of dead and wounded remained behind. Gettysburg's homes became hospitals, its fields burial grounds. At the base of the panel is a graphic of a photograph, faded around the edges, of Union soldiers posing with their rifles standing on end. The caption reads, In the summer of 1863, more than a thousand soldiers from Adams County, Pennsylvania, were serving in the Union Army. Company K of the 1st Pennsylvania Reserves, pictured here, was raised in Adams County, went off to war in 1861, and came back home to fight at Gettysburg in 1863. Battle's Aftermath, approximately 1 minute 30 seconds. The next panel is on the same wall to your left about 10 feet and just past a closed door. Titled Battle's Aftermath, it presents drawings of wounded soldiers being tended to by nuns and nurses. Still a visitor to Gettysburg, J. Howard Wirt noted that Not all who descended on Gettysburg after the battle came to help. Some came out of curiosity or seeking plunder. They pilfered from the living and robbed the bodies of the dead. They even resurrected corpses from their shallow entombment in the hope that some valuable might be found on the festering body. At the bottom is a photograph of a young woman with hair parted neatly at the center. 
Sarah Broadhead, a local resident. A caption quotes the woman. It is heart-sickening to think of these noble fellows sacrificing everything for us and saving us, and it out of our power to render any assistance of consequence. The body of text here reads, After the battle, Gettysburg became a vast hospital and morgue. Dead and wounded soldiers outnumbered civilians eleven to one. Food and supplies were slow to arrive over the burdened railroad. Some of our wounded have not eaten since the first or second, wrote one reporter on July 5th. The women and children have been living in cellars and are just beginning to emerge from their dismal hiding places. Doctors, nurses, and family members descended upon the town, but so did curiosity seekers and vandals. After being overrun and eaten out by two large armies, these thousands of additional guests taxed the local citizenry to its limits. David Wills and Community, approximately 3 minutes, 10 seconds. Please turn to your left at this corner of the parlor and move past a shaded window on your right. The next panel is titled, David Wills, A Life in Gettysburg. The sign displays family photos, including two of Wills' young girls in matching checked dresses. Wills' wife, Catherine Smizer Wills, wearing her dark hair pulled back in hanging curls and a white cameo pin on her collar, and a toddler posing in a chair. Also on the panel is a photo of Wills posing with several classmates from the class of 1851 at Pennsylvania, now Gettysburg, College. Text tells us that, David Wills was born 11 miles from here in 1831, he died in this very room in 1894. He attended Pennsylvania, now Gettysburg, College, and by 1854 he was an attorney and superintendent of Adams County's schools. Two years later he married Catherine Jane Jenny Smizer, and by the summer of 1863 the Wills had three children. In all they had seven children, Catherine, Mary, Annie, Jenny, Emma, David Jr., and James. David Wills was always deeply involved in community affairs. He was appointed president of the Gettysburg Borough Council in 1872 and became Adams County judge two years later. He also served on numerous boards of directors, including that of the Bank of Gettysburg and the Gettysburg Railroad Company. But history would remember Wills for his efforts after the 1863 battle. Please continue to your left and note that a plexiglass case extends from the wall under another shaded window with a photo of Swan's Grocery. In the case are preserved Wills College Diary and an oval daguerreotype photo of Mrs. Wills within a gold clasp. The photo is of Catherine Jane, or Jenny, Smizer Wills, circa 1850. David and Jenny were married in 1856. Immediately to the left is the next informational panel, labeled War and the Wills House. Featured on this panel is a painting of Confederate soldiers, many on horseback, occupying the town square in Gettysburg on June 26th. To the left is another image of the young Mrs. Wills. Text reads, The Civil War came to the doorstep of the Wills' home in 1863. Confederate soldiers first came to Gettysburg in search of supplies on June 26th. 
They raided local shops, including the dry goods store of Robert McElhenney, who rented space from David Wills. During the Confederate occupation of the town, Wills saw a group of rebels with an axe break open the store door of another of his tenants. All the while, local citizens huddled in his cellar. During and after the battle, the Wills' home filled quickly with wounded and dying soldiers. Local women acting as nurses tended to these men, and the U.S. Sanitary Commission, a civilian relief organization, established a temporary warehouse here. The U.S. Provost Marshal used the home as headquarters, and Gettysburg's leading citizens met here to make plans for proper burial of the dead. Mrs. Catherine Wills was also ready to pitch in. The attorney's wife took food to the wounded, bringing some of them back to the house. Soldiers were bathed, fed, and given clean clothing and comfortable beds. Recovery, Part 1. Approximately 5 minutes, 20 seconds. Please proceed in a counterclockwise manner as you move to the left at the second corner of the room. On your right is the next sign, a difficult recovery. At the top is a photo of a rifle and battle debris lying in grass. The caption lets us know that Gettysburg civilians shouldered much of the responsibility for the cleanup after the battle. The text reveals as much. There was little rest for the citizens of Gettysburg in the weeks and months after the battle. The town was under martial law, and the army provost marshal arrested anyone caught gathering up or selling government property, including soldiers' weapons and equipment. The army's policies angered citizens so much that Pennsylvania Congressman Thaddeus Stevens warned Secretary of War Edwin Stanton Unless something be done, the administration will not receive one-fifth of the votes in that region. Conversely, some soldiers formed a negative opinion of Gettysburg's civilians. Union Colonel Charles Wainwright noted, The Pennsylvanians do not give us a warm welcome. They are much more greedy than the Marylanders. Butter has gone up to 50 cents a pound, and skimmed milk to 25 cents a canteen. Yet they are running with complaints if a single fence rail is burned. To the side is a reproduction of a newspaper notice warning citizens to steer clear of government property. Text reads, Some northern reporters criticized Gettysburg citizens for not providing aid to the soldiers who had defended their town. The New York Herald, for example, declared that the meanness of some of the citizens of Pennsylvania is literally disgusting. On the other hand, the Adams Sentinel wrote on July 21st that... We feel satisfied that Gettysburg and its loyal citizens will not be forgotten when the history of this war is written by future historians. Immediately behind you, toward the center of the room, are a two-sided panel and a model of the town as it appeared in the 1860s. To the right, on the side of the panel that faces the room's fireplace, the display announces Bloodiest Battle. A photo of Lydia Leister's small pasture and home reveals broken fences and damage to the home. General Meade had used the house as his headquarters, but it could not escape the ravages of war. Also pictured is a surgical tent with a doctor holding a tool and standing with a wounded soldier lying nearby. A caption informs us that Three quarters of all surgeries during the war were amputations. The one pictured here took place at Camp Letterman, a general hospital set up in tents just outside Gettysburg.
The body of the text on the panel tells a grim story. There were fifty-one thousand men killed, wounded, or captured during the Battle of Gettysburg. After the armies moved out, over twenty thousand wounded, Union and Confederate, were left behind, filling houses, barns, churches, and stores converted to temporary field hospitals. The army medical services were overwhelmed. The wounded outnumbered surgeons by almost a hundred to one. By late July, Camp Letterman, a large U.S. general hospital, was established east of Gettysburg, improving the care and conditions of the wounded. More than seven thousand men were killed outright in the fighting. The armies hastily buried their own dead in marked shallow graves and enemy dead in unmarked trenches, and then moved on. When heavy rains exposed poorly buried bodies, Gettysburg citizens helped with the gruesome task of reburial. During this period of upheaval and confusion, big questions were yet to be answered: How would this town get back to normal, and would the dead remain indefinitely in their crude battlefield graves? Below this text is the image of bodies strewn in a field. A caption explains: Most of the Confederate dead, such as these, were only hastily buried, if at all, before the armies moved on. Additional text speaks of David Wills' involvement. Not only did he shelter dozens of wounded in his home, but David Wills also helped visitors who came seeking the bodies of their loved ones. He met the challenge posed by the battle and its aftermath, and embarked on a course that transformed both his own life and the Gettysburg community. On the opposite side of this panel is a map of field burials and an observation by J. Howard Wirt, a visitor to Gettysburg. In the garden of the Rose House, in full view. Nearly one hundred rebels were buried. All around the barn, even within the house yard, within a few feet of the doors, were in numbers the scantily buried followers of the Confederate cause. At the base of this panel is a plexiglass case extending out from the panel. It exhibits a pocket surgical kit, circa 1860, with pointed medical instruments, a tintype or early photograph in a golden frame. Picturing Private William D. Race, he had been wounded in the lungs and died during surgery in a field hospital on July 24th. A 58 caliber pain bullet with teeth marks used by a soldier to help him bear his wounds. Ether and chloroform were used as anesthetics, but may have been unavailable for this soldier. A pocket diary with yellowed pages stained with brown marks. Showing a list of dead Confederate soldiers buried on the battlefield, and a handwritten letter penned in flowing script from Annie Sheeds to Gillespie B. Corwin on August fourteenth, eighteen sixty-three. It describes the battle and the horrors that this civilian had experienced, and a booklet printed in late eighteen sixty-three, three weeks at Gettysburg, an account of Georgiana Bacon. Who had traveled from Baltimore to assist the U.S. Sanitary Commission? Recovery, Part Two, approximately four minutes. Immediately to your left, adjacent to this panel and case, is a panel that faces the entrance area. Jutting out from it. Is a rectangular plexiglass case that displays a scale model of the center of Gettysburg. 
Please walk around the case, moving to your left, as you listen to the following material. The panel includes a large photo of the model and tells us that you are looking at the center of the town of Gettysburg as it looked just prior to dedication of the Soldiers National Cemetery on November 19, 1863. During and after the Battle of Gettysburg, homes, stores, and churches were turned into hiding places, supply depots, and hospitals. The numbered buildings, pictured and described on the panel surrounding the diorama, represent just some of the many uses and the many stories of the buildings within a two-block radius of the David Wills House and illustrate how the townspeople dealt with the crisis. Several of the building stories include a three-story structure with high arched windows and a bell tower at top, the Gettysburg Railroad Depot. Lincoln arrived here on November 18, 1863, greeted by David Wills and Edward Everett, and noticed coffins waiting to be used for reburial of the battle dead. The David Wills House, where soldiers were treated for their wounds. The Robert Harper House, a two-story brick building with two gable windows protruding from the attic area. Harper, owner-editor of the Republican Adams Sentinel newspaper, hosted Secretary of State Seward on November 18, 1863. Lincoln made a visit to Seward that evening. The Christ Lutheran Church, a typical church structure with a gabled entrance area supported by four columns. Army chaplain Horatio Howell was killed on the church steps during the July 1st federal retreat. The church, like most, was used as a hospital after the battle. And the Globe Inn, a two-story structure with long porches on the first and second levels. Owner Charles Wills sold whiskey to Federal soldiers on the morning of July 1st, and meals to Confederate soldiers during the occupation of the town. From a position on the opposite side of the glass case, facing the diorama, please turn to your left and move just about eight feet forward. The benches in the center of the room are to your left. You will arrive at a plexiglass case standing at about waist height, it displays a First Corps badge from the Army of the Potomac, 1863. It's a round medal with a red center surrounded by gold. Text tells us that... Corps badges contributed to esprit de corps by giving divisions a distinctive identity. Red denotes a member of the Corps' first division. These soldiers fought through town during the Union withdrawal to Cemetery Hill on July 1st. To the right is a military pass, dated July 2nd, 1863. Text reads, This slip of paper, torn from the page of a diary, served as a safe conduct pass for David Wills through the Confederate lines during the battle. Next is a U.S. Oval Waist Belt Plate, dating from 1862. Its caption reads, Found along Oak Ridge, north of Gettysburg after the battle, this belt is inscribed... T.H. Company 1, 104, NYV. It most likely belonged to Private Thomas Halligan of Company 1, New York Infantry. Halligan and his comrades took part in the first day's battle north of Gettysburg and withdrew through the town at the end of that day. Finally, the last artifact here is the Soldier's Hymn Book with Tunes, published by the Boston Young Men's Christian Association circa 1863. 
It belonged to Sergeant Francis J. Swoyer, Company C, 107th Pennsylvania Infantry. Hardship, approximately 3 minutes 30 seconds. To your left, several feet, is another vertical panel labeled Local Hardships. At the left is an oval framed photo portrait of a young David Wills. To the right is a photo of a white frame house with a dilapidated white picket fence surrounding a yard to the right. Lying on the ground adjacent to the fence are the carcasses of dead horses. A caption reads, Horses were essential to the operations of a farm and an army. Hundreds were killed at the Battle of Gettysburg. The body of the text on this panel provides additional perspective. As time went on, Gettysburg citizens began to wonder if they would be compensated for the damage and economic losses they had suffered. As a prominent local attorney, David Wills spent years fighting for their reimbursement. Despite his efforts, very few ever received any kind of compensation from the local, state, or federal government. The farm of William Bliss, for example, was burned to the ground during the fighting under orders of a Union general. Bliss was denied compensation on the grounds that his property was destroyed out of necessity of war. The battle left him utterly ruined, but he was such an ardent Unionist that he later claimed, if I had twenty farms, I would give them all for such a victory. An ornately designed certificate is displayed at right. It is a Certificate for War Damages for D.C. Brinkerhoff. Wills assisted Gettysburg residents in filing claims for battle damage. Below the certificate, a statement by Nathaniel Leitner, Gettysburg farmer, is reproduced. War is awful. Everything suffers in war. People all suffer. Animals suffer. The trees are torn by shot and shell or are cut down ruthlessly for fires and breastworks. Grain and grass are eaten up or trodden into the ground in an hour. Springs and wells are the soldiers' boons and are supped up to the last drop. Just to the left of this signage, you'll encounter the third corner of the room and at left is a doorway. Before we proceed to the next section of our tour, you may note a panel just to the left of the doorway. It's labeled, The Busiest Office in Gettysburg. Text reads, The room you're about to enter was David Wills' office, the center of Gettysburg's recovery effort. In 19th century America, the government had no standing agencies or institutions to deal with national disaster. David Wills' office combined the functions of a federal emergency management agency, centers for disease control, and American Red Cross, all in one. In this office, Theodore Diamond, a former army surgeon representing New York State, advanced the idea of burying all the Union dead on the lines of battle at Gettysburg. David Wills arranged for the cemetery's consecration and Lincoln's visit. Supplies for the wounded were stored, and Wills fought for compensation for the farmers who suffered losses during the battle. Below these words is a photo of a modest two-story brick building, men mill outside. One man is astride a steed. A caption tells us that, Supplies for the wounded were brought into town via train and wagon and stored at every available post. The building is labeled U.S. Sanitary Commission. Below this is a photo of the bearded David Wills. 
He was 33 years old at the time of Lincoln's visit and the cemetery's dedication ceremony. To continue with the tour, please proceed through the doorway and note the threshold and Will's carpeted office. The next tour section, Will's office, begins there. Office Exhibits, Part 1. Approximately 2 minutes, 10 seconds. You are now standing in David Will's office, a room that's slightly smaller than the parlor. Its wood flooring is covered with a broad-striped Venetian carpet, typical of the period. On the side of the room where you entered, a white wooden mantle surrounds a cast-iron insert stove, which must have provided warmth for Will's as he sat at a table set in the center of the room. Exhibits line the wall opposite the fireplace and along the wall at the far left. We'll begin visiting the room at a display directly opposite the door where you entered Will's office. Just walk about 12 feet forward. We'll proceed in a counterclockwise fashion. The first panel in this room is titled, A Final Resting Place. It features a scale map of the design for the Soldiers National Cemetery at Gettysburg. Its curved and symmetrical layout resembles the audience area of an amphitheater. The text on this panel informs us that... Pennsylvania Governor Andrew Curtin visited the battlefield with Wills on July 10, 1863, and was shocked by its conditions. He designated Wills as state agent charged with seeing to the proper burial of Pennsylvania's dead. At a meeting of state agents here in Will's house several days later, the idea of establishing a permanent national cemetery for all Union dead was advanced. Governor Curtin approved this idea and gave Will's the authority to carry it out. By mid-August, Will's had purchased 17 acres on Cemetery Hill. Will's engaged well-known landscape designer William Saunders, some states objected to his initial plan to bury the dead without regard to their states. Saunders changed his plan, yet maintained a key element, the physical representation of equality. The graves of all men, regardless of rank, are identical and equally distanced from the center of the semicircle formation. Upon reviewing the plan while preparing the address, President Lincoln remarked, It is befitting. A caption reveals that Saunders created the original design plan for the Soldiers National Cemetery without knowing the total number of needed grave sites. Saunders remarked that the name, company, and regiment being carved in the granite opposite each interment, thus securing a simple and expressive arrangement combined with great permanence and durability. In the center of the panel, at right, is a flyer that announces... Proposals for the Removal of the Dead from Gettysburg Battlefield, signed by David Wills. At the base of the panel, on the right, David Wills is quoted. A father, a brother, a son has been lost on the battlefield, supposed to be killed, but no tidings whatever have the bereaved friends of him. His remains are discovered by sure marks, and they are deposited in a coffin with care and buried in this very appropriate place the Soldiers' National Cemetery. This panel, as with many others throughout the house, is mounted on a translucent plate that often has other images imprinted on it. Here, several soldiers lie motionless in a field. 
In a photo at the base of the panel, several black workers stand near coffins. We are told that burial parties traveled as far as Hanover, Pennsylvania, 17 miles east of Gettysburg, to exhume bodies of soldiers from temporary graves. Office Exhibits, Part 2, Approximately 5 Minutes, 50 Seconds. Continuing to the left, the bulk of this wall is dominated by a large map of Adams County, Pennsylvania, as it was in the 19th century. To the right of the map, under plexiglass, is the original Report of the Select Committee relative to the Soldiers' Cemetery. Text reads... First published in 1864, this report included key correspondence on the creation of the cemetery, efforts at the removal of the dead from the battlefield, and lists of articles found on the bodies of the dead soldiers that could be identified or reclaimed by relatives. David Wills authored several sections of this report and would continue to issue updates to it as years passed. Moving further left, past the map, you will encounter another panel mounted on the wall and entitled... Planning the Consecration. The top of the sign is focused on a reproduction of a document in florid script. It begins, In the name of and by the authority of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, Andrew G. Curtin, Governor of the said Commonwealth. A caption reads, With this commission from Governor Andrew Curtin, David Wills represented Pennsylvania in cemetery affairs and decisions. At the bottom right of the panel is a photograph of a fully bearded man in a Union military uniform. The caption tells us that... Major General George Gordon Meade was the commander of the Union Army of the Potomac at the Battle of Gettysburg. On November 13, 1863, Meade wrote to Wills... Thank you and those you represent for your tender care of the Army's heroic dead and for your patriotic zeal which, in honoring the martyr, gives a fresh incentive to all who do battle for the maintenance of the integrity of the government. The body of the text on the panel reads as follows. Wills scheduled the consecration of the Soldiers' National Cemetery for October 23rd, but keynote speaker Edward Everett wrote that he could not be ready to deliver his lengthy oration until November 19th, and so the dedication date was adjusted. Wills issued special invitations to northern governors requesting their presence to honor the dead from their states. He also invited soldiers and poets, judges and clergymen, and other prominent Americans. The autumn of 1863 found David Wills in a flurry of activity, overseeing the reburials and planning the consecration ceremony. Along with Ward H. Lehman, a close friend of the president, Wills drew up a program complete with a military procession, prayer, invocation, and speeches. No detail was overlooked, right down to the color and size of the rosettes worn by state marshals. Turn left at this corner of David Wills' office and continue past the doorway. On the wall at your right are three additional displays. The first begins with a quote from a letter from Governor Curtin to David Wills on October 7, 1863. Please aid Mr. Hazen Miller in any way you can in finding the remains. In a plexiglass case, below is a broadside document issued by David Wills. It appeals for Proposals for the removal of the dead from Gettysburg Battlefield. 
Also on display is a handwritten letter from Edward Everett to David Wills in December of 1863. A caption informs us that Little, Brown, and Company published an edition of Edward Everett's November 19th oration. Wills provided Everett with manuscript materials, most likely for the book's introduction. Another handwritten letter here is from David Wills to Isaac Fisher, dated December 8, 1863. We learn that... Wills sent and received numerous letters to the families of Union soldiers killed in the battle. One such person was Isaac Fisher of Bridgeville, Delaware, whose son William had been killed on July 2nd while serving as an officer in the 10th U.S. Infantry. The next case, several feet on to the left, displays a handwritten letter with a heading in florid print, Pennsylvania Executive Chamber. It is an October 4, 1863 letter from Governor Curtin to David Wills, requesting that Wills help a gentleman attempting to locate the remains of a soldier from the 1st Minnesota Infantry. Below this is another handwritten letter dated November 20, 1863, from A.G. Feather to David Wills. Captain Feather of the 138th Pennsylvania Infantry requests that Wills recommend him to Governor Curtin for a promotion to Lieutenant Colonel. In the third panel, several feet to the left, the panel is topped with a quotation from a letter from Edward Everett to David Wills, dated October 2nd, 1863. I'm very desirous of meeting your convenience with reference to the day of the consecration. Lower on the panel is a case containing an elaborate document from the governor. It has a round green seal at left and in handwritten script provides a commission to David Wills designating him as the official agent to facilitate the creation of the National Cemetery. Also displayed is a handwritten letter from Edward Everett to David Wills dated October 2, 1863. It is Everett's response to Wills' invitation to give the dedicatory speech. Everett notes that he could do so no earlier than November 19th. Wills honored that request and scheduled the dedication for that day. Please turn left at this corner of the room. Immediately to your right, inset on this wall, is an exact reproduction of the cherry wood combination secretary and bookcase that once stood here. The bookcase contains a variety of original texts. They include the Pennsylvania Archives, Colonial Records, and the Laws of Pennsylvania, their brown bindings cracked and worn. Centered on this wall is a white framed fireplace with fireplace tools on the floor just in front. Its mantle holds a clock at right, a bust of George Washington at the left, and in the center is signage that provides information about James J. Wills, pictured in a gold-framed painting created by local artist David S. Forney and mounted above the fireplace. James J. Wills, 1802-1883, was David Wills' father. At the time of Lincoln's visit, James Wills was living here as part of his son David's household. Contemporary eyewitness accounts relate the jovial exchanges between James Wills and Lincoln the evening of November 18, 1863.
Will's desk, approximately 1 minute 40 seconds. From a position facing the fireplace, please turn around 180 degrees. Before you is David Will's dark wood desk and two chairs. Atop the desk and just to the left is a replica of an old-fashioned gas lamp with curved glass shade and dangling crystal pieces. On the desk surrounding the lamp are a pair of horn-rimmed glasses, a three-cigar case, and handwritten and printed sheets of paper. On the right side of the desk is a placard headed with the words, A Few Appropriate Remarks. The text continues. In an August 31, 1863 letter to Governor Curtin, Wills suggested holding appropriate ceremonies to consecrate the National Cemetery. He could not have imagined that this idea would bring Lincoln to Gettysburg and result in the Gettysburg Address. With Curtin's approval, Wills scheduled the consecration and began sending out invitations. To the right on the panel is a reproduction of the letter Wills wrote to Lincoln inviting him to stay at his home. As Edward Everett was the keynote speaker, Lincoln was asked to say only a few appropriate remarks at the end of the ceremony. The letter reads, It is desired that, after the oration, you, as chief executive of the nation, formally set apart these grounds to their sacred use by a few appropriate remarks. At the bottom of the panel is a photograph taken on July 4, 1865, showing dozens of temporary wooden grave markers. These were replaced later with granite and marble headstones. Please turn to your left and move on a diagonal to the right, about 15 feet. You'll find a doorway that leads to the foyer you visited at the beginning of the tour. After passing through the doorway, turn left and stay to the right. Foyer, approximately 1 minute, 25 seconds. At your right, mounted on the wall in this passageway, is a panel that provides highlights of Gettysburg before the battle and Gettysburg after the battle. This large horizontal panel features a series of replications of newspaper pages and posters from 1863. Before the battle, Gettysburg was a town of 2,400 people, the seat within a thriving farm county with increasing industry, a network of 10 major roads, and connection to a mainline railroad. News clippings refer to battles far away, list a bountiful array of crops for sale, and highlight commerce, education, religion, and community. After the battle, the roads and trains of Gettysburg now transported supplies, doctors, and soldiers' family members into town, and the armies, including many of their wounded and dead, out of town. Newspapers now display the need for new soldiers and volunteers, religious service notices, and news of the National Cemetery to be located at Gettysburg. Turn to your left and continue along this passageway. A stairway on your left leads to the second floor of the home and the continuation of our tour. The broad stairway has wide wood railings. Fifteen steps will take you to a landing where you will turn around to your left and proceed another six steps. An elevator is available if you'd prefer. Walk forward about 15 feet 
and turn right into the information desk area. Turn right again and move about 10 feet forward past display shelves on your left and to the elevator. The next section of our tour begins upstairs. Lincoln comes to Gettysburg. Second floor hallway, top of stairs, approximately 4 minutes and 20 seconds. Before you is a photo mural of soldiers and townspeople gathered on the battlefield. The panel is titled, Lincoln Comes to Gettysburg. Text reads, As many as 20,000 people converged upon Gettysburg to honor the dead and to catch a glimpse of visiting dignitaries. In these rooms you will follow events from Abraham Lincoln's acceptance of David Will's invitation through his delivery of the immortal address. You will learn how Gettysburg accommodated its visitors and how the Wills family opened its home to dozens of guests. You will stand in the room where Lincoln finished revising his remarks the night before he delivered them and explore how and why the Gettysburg Address is remembered to this day. Also featured on the panel is an artist's rendering of the long, lanky Lincoln in a striped shirt and suspenders, seated on a chair, examining a large sheet of paper. Next to it is another artist's drawing of the president arriving at the Gettysburg train station on November 18, 1863, and walking the short distance to the Wills house. Please continue along the hallway immediately in front of the top of the stairs. After about 20 feet, turn to your left and into a large room and our next section, War President. War President. Introduction, Will's House Guests, approximately 4 minutes, 40 seconds. This section, War President, begins with a panel to your left just as you enter this room. It's titled War President, and atop it has a black and white photograph of President Lincoln visiting General McClellan near the Antietam battlefield. Lincoln, in his stovepipe top hat, stands outside a tent and towers over soldiers around him. The Union victory at Antietam was the platform Lincoln needed to issue his Emancipation Proclamation. The text here lets us know that Many in the North questioned whether Lincoln was the right man to lead the country. In 1863, the U.S. government instituted an unpopular military draft. That July, in New York, frustrations mounted and thousands of citizens rioted. In their fury, they terrorized African Americans and other innocent bystanders they associated with the draft. Emancipation fueled much of the controversy. Democrats condemned Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, while many Republicans claimed that the President moved too slowly on the issue. Even Lincoln's cabinet was divided. Through it all, Lincoln remained firm in his resolve to do whatever was necessary to preserve the Union. Now, please turn to the other side of the doorway to continue our tour. A panel mounted on the wall here is titled, The Guests Arrive. On the left side of the panel is an enlarged image of a train engine billowing white smoke at the Gettysburg Station. To the right, the placard here depicts the tall columned depot that served travelers to and from Gettysburg. Erected in 1859, passenger service was discontinued in 1942. 
President Lincoln was its most celebrated guest. Further right is a photo portrait of the young, clean-shaven and curly-haired Pennsylvania Governor Andrew Curtin. The caption notes that Senators, governors, and three of Lincoln's cabinet members were also in town and lodging with prominent citizens. Secretary of State William Seward stayed with Will's neighbor Robert Harper, editor of the Adams Sentinel. The body of the text reads... Gettysburg's 2,400 citizens hosted as many as 20,000 visitors for the consecration, and David Wills welcomed the most prominent into his own home. Edward Everett was the first to arrive, coming two days early to tour the battlefield and prepare for his oration. Worn-out equipment and railroad accidents delayed the trains of both Lincoln and Governor Curtin. Wills finally met Lincoln and his entourage after dusk on the 18th at the station just one block from here. The group proceeded to the Wills house, where Mrs. Wills had a feast waiting for her guests. David Wills spent the evening greeting well-wishers and showing his guests to their rooms. Governor Curtin was the last to arrive and did not reach Gettysburg until almost midnight. By that time, the house was full. Wills contemplated having Curtin share Edward Everett's bed, but Everett refused, and Curtin found lodging elsewhere. Now, please turn to your left at this corner of the room and move past a window on your right to the next panel titled, A Full House. On the right side is a line drawing of curtains pulled back, a window pane, and a vase filled with flowers. The signage here displays a black-and-white photograph of the imposing Wills House, at the center of town. The caption reads, The Wills House was large and centrally located in the town square. It was home to several prominent guests the night before the ceremony. Edward Everett is quoted, saying, I did not get to bed till half past eleven, and the fear of having the executive of Pennsylvania tumble in upon me kept me awake till one. The main text on the panel informs us that, The Wills House was among the largest in town, but on the evening of November 18th it overflowed with dinner guests, 38 in all. Edward Everett, the French minister to Washington, Governor Curtin, and other dignitaries were here. Mrs. Wills had also prepared several bedrooms for overnight guests, and everyone was full, including her own, given to the president. Along with each came aides and guards necessary to ensure their safety and comfort. The Wills family, like many Victorian households, employed a serving staff to help with the chores required to keep a large family comfortable. During dinner, Mrs. Wills glanced up to see the cook peeking out from the kitchen door to catch a glimpse of Lincoln and the other famous visitors. Hosting such distinguished guests, let alone a president, was a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience for everyone involved. After dinner, the guests retired to the parlor. They talked and amused the Wills' children until Lincoln and other overnight guests retired to their rooms. Also included is a reproduction of a contemporary publication's proper table setting for a formal occasion, and a highlight from a Civil War-era cookbook noting the best dishes for such an evening. Whatever the cost, approximately five minutes. The next exhibit in this room is toward the center of the room. Please turn 180 degrees and walk about six feet forward. A display labeled, Whatever the Cost, will be at your right. 
This panel features an almost life-size enlarged photograph of African Americans, mostly women and children, posing in front of a shack. Text states, In the fall of 1863, Abraham Lincoln was consumed with the work of the war. Why did he pause in his efforts to deliver a few remarks in a Pennsylvania town 70 miles away, a distance that took most of a day to travel in the 19th century? Lincoln knew that he was asking his countrymen to pay a terrible price in human lives, but for what? The war's initial purpose had been to preserve the Union. In late 1862, the Emancipation Proclamation transformed it into a war to destroy slavery as well. But as the death toll mounted, many wondered whether any cause was worth the awful price. The Gettysburg Address was Lincoln's effort to define and defend the war's objectives and the need to see them through, whatever the cost. The war, he said, was a test of whether a nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal could survive and remain true to its founding ideals. His speech came at a critical time in the war, when Union victory was still uncertain. Lincoln knew that great sacrifices were still necessary, and he took this opportunity to ask the country to rededicate itself to the grim work ahead so that it might realize a new birth of freedom. On the other side of the panel is a black-and-white photograph of a Washington, D.C. general hospital ward. It is festooned with draped garlands and American flags. Wounded soldiers and their beds line the ward, just part of the tremendous cost of war. Please turn back to the wall and move just a few steps to the left. You'll encounter a display case standing against the wall. Inside are a variety of artifacts linked to the Wills House legacy. From left to right are an ambrotype, a black-and-white photograph in a gold frame. It pictures Mary Wills, the second child of David and Catherine Wills. Born in 1858, she spent the evening before the dedication with Lincoln and the other Wills guests. She is approximately two years old in this photograph. Next is a stamp kit belonging to Catherine Wills and dating from about 1856. It consists of two ink pads, a vial of ink, and a stamper with a handle that loops and curls. Mrs. Wills used the kit to mark calling cards, personal correspondence, or household items. Its scroll work, typical of the Rococo Revival style, places it in the mid-1850s, around the time of her marriage to David Wills. The following item in the case is a white towel, circa 1860, embroidered with an elaborate W. It is one of several hand towels owned by the Wills family at the time of Lincoln's visit in 1863. Next, a skeleton key is displayed. It operated the lock to the room in which Lincoln stayed on his visit to Gettysburg. And finally, a small black-and-white photograph of a young couple. It is a carte de visite of Private William Adams, Company F, 108th U.S. Colored Troops, 1864. Private Adams was a member of one of the regiments of African-American soldiers raised after the 1863 Emancipation Proclamation. While he served in the war's Western theater, Adams was one of thousands of African-Americans, including some Gettysburg civilians, who answered the Union's call. 
Please turn to your left and move along the wall about 10 feet to the next panel, behind the scenes. A line drawing at the top of the panel depicts three women in a kitchen area. A barrel of clothing is nearby, and one woman manipulates cloth through a roller, part of an old fashioned washing machine. The caption tells us that the Wills family employed a small household staff. Text reports that. In addition to hosting a major national event in November of 1863, Mrs. Wills was expecting her fourth child. Complicating matters further was the constant activity in the home ever since the battle. But she had a household staff that helped her make the dinner, evening, and morning events run smoothly. Each of her guests also relied on personal staff during the occasion. Lincoln himself was accompanied by his personal servant, William Johnson, a young African American whom Lincoln described as honest, faithful, sober, industrious. Johnson had been with him since 1860. To the right is a black and white photograph of a middle aged, clean shaven man, Basil Biggs, an African American farmer in Gettysburg who returned after the battle to play an important role in the cleanup and reburial process. Text shares additional information. Some of Adams County's African American residents enlisted in newly authorized colored regiments, provided for by Lincoln's January Emancipation Proclamation. Many who stayed behind rightfully feared that Confederate troops might kidnap and sell them into slavery, and so escaped north or went into hiding. After the fighting, those who returned helped in the recovery process, but many never came back. Gettysburg inundated, approximately four minutes and 25 seconds. Please turn to your left and follow the wall several feet to the corner of the room, then turn left again, about eight feet forward. As you pass a window looking out on the town square, you'll come to the next panel Gettysburg Inundated. At the top of this panel is a drawing of Cemetery Hill during the dedication on November 19th. Seen from afar, thousands of people surround several areas. A tall flagpole flying the American flag is near the center of the depiction. The text below the drawing confirms that. The swarm of visitors that descended upon Gettysburg on the eve of the cemetery dedication were even larger than the crowds that flocked to town just after the battle. Every hotel was overbooked and houses were overcrowded. Even churches and public buildings threw their doors open to the masses. Crowds of visitors, a military band, a college glee club, and more than a few inebriated travelers roamed the streets hoping for a speech from Lincoln or other dignitaries. Since that night, many presidents and luminaries have visited Gettysburg, especially at the 50th and 75th battle anniversaries. But there were more prominent individuals in Gettysburg on November 19, 1863, than on any day before or since. The president and half his cabinet, a dozen governors or ex governors, two foreign ministers, Edward Everett, and at least five Union generals. To the right on the panel is another drawing. Depicting the lanky and lean Lincoln standing on the speaker's platform with his left arm raised. The caption reads After dinner, in response to crowds and a serenading band, Abraham Lincoln came to the front steps of the Wills House and announced that he had no speech prepared. 
In my position, it is somewhat important that I should not say any foolish things, he concluded. Please continue to your left several feet, where you'll encounter another display case standing at the wall and jutting in toward the room. On display from left to right are a printed pamphlet containing a speech by the Honorable William H. Seward, dated March 11, 1850. Seward later became Lincoln's Secretary of State. The caption states As demonstrated by the speech he gave to civilians of Gettysburg on the night of November 18th, As a senator from New York, he voiced opposition to slavery, such as in this speech delivered to the Senate on the admission of California to the Union. To the right are two 1863 documents consisting of a range of signatures. The caption tells us that This document is a list of dignitaries that paid their respects to the President and the Wills family on November 19th. This included Governor Curtin, Lincoln friend and confidant Ward Lehman, And Major General Abner Doubleday. The next panel in this room is several feet to your left, Eve of the Address. The panel is imprinted with Lincoln's handwritten script. To the right is a placard with a photograph of the President staring forward. It was taken just ten days before the Gettysburg Address. The President has a full head of dark hair and eyebrows. His beard is full, but without a mustache. Text reports that Abraham Lincoln wrote portions of the Gettysburg Address before he left Washington, but finished writing it in the room you are about to enter. After carefully reworking the address and getting details about the consecration ceremony from Wills, Lincoln walked next door, speech in hand, to visit Secretary of State Seward. He returned within half an hour and retired to the bedroom in front of you. The next morning, he made final revisions to his speech before proceeding to the ceremony. Below this text is a quotation from a letter by David Wills to Louisa A. W. Russell in 1893. Between nine and ten o'clock, the president sent his servant to request me to come to his room. I went and found him with paper prepared to write, and he said that he had just seated himself to put upon paper a few thoughts for tomorrow's exercises, and had sent for me to ascertain what part he was to take in them and what was expected of him. After a full talk on the subject, I left him. To the right is a black and white photograph of Secretary of State Seward in profile, facing left. The text tells us that While Lincoln declined to give a proper speech at the Wills House on the night of November 18th, Secretary of State Seward was ready. In a lengthy oration at the neighboring Harper House, Seward proclaimed slavery to be the cause of the Civil War and said that its abolishment should be the war's aim. The end of his speech foreshadowed Lincoln's address the next day. This government of ours, the purest, the best, and the wisest and happiest in the world, must be, and so far as we are concerned, practically will be, immortal. Tad Lincoln, approximately three minutes and ten seconds. One panel remains in this section of our tour. Please continue several feet to the left and turn left at this corner of the room. Then walk forward past the doorway and a non working fireplace on your right. In the final corner of the room, on your right, is a panel that features an enlarged photograph of the President seated with spectacles on and a book in his lap. 
Standing next to him is his young son, Tad. The panel is titled, Family Trauma. Below a black and white drawing of the Lincoln family around a table, Mary Todd, Willie, Robert, Tad, and Abraham, is explanatory text. The president's family life was a constant trial. His wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, came from an affluent slave-owning Kentucky family, and four of her brothers joined the Confederate Army. Critics of the president even circulated rumors that she harbored Confederate sympathies. The Lincolns had already lost two sons to disease. Three-year-old Eddie had died in 1850, and 11-year-old Willie had just died in 1862. Another son, Tad, fell ill that November, and Lincoln was anxious that he might die while he was away. But understanding that his family crisis was eclipsed by national tragedy, Lincoln headed to Gettysburg. While at the Wills' house late on the evening of November 18th, Lincoln received word via telegram that Tad's health had improved. In script at the base of the signage are the words, Left the hope dear Taddy is slightly better. The excerpt is part of a telegram sent by Mrs. Lincoln to her husband. The actual telegram is mounted on the wall to the left. To the right is a black-and-white photograph of a Union soldier in uniform, Hugh Paxton Bigham, a sergeant in the 21st Pennsylvania Cavalry who guarded the president during his Gettysburg stay. Bigham remembers Lincoln telling him, Guard, that document brought me good news. I was not sure that I could come to Gettysburg because my son, Tad, was supposed to be seriously sick in the White House. This dispatch tells me that he is very much better. Thank God for this news. I can rest better tonight. If you turn around 180 degrees and step a few feet forward, you'll be at the reverse side of the War President panel, the first panel we visited in this room. On this side of the panel is a drawing of a seated Lincoln at a table, surrounded by the six members of his oft-divided cabinet. A caption informs us that, Three members of Lincoln's cabinet had opposed him in the 1860 election and initially disdained him. All of the cabinet were strong-willed men who frequently disagreed with one another over policy. Lincoln believed his administration benefited from opposing points of view, and through his skillful management style held the cabinet together and earned their admiration and respect. Now, please turn back to the wall with the fireplace and move to your right. Return past the fireplace to the doorway on your left. That is where we'll begin the next section of our tour. Lincoln Bedroom. You are now at the threshold of the Lincoln Bedroom. Please note that an audio presentation repeats every seven minutes and that no flash photography is allowed. You may want to pause your audio tour player during the audio presentation in the room. As you enter the room, you may notice that this area is carpeted with a Wilton carpet in a red, yellow, and green rose and scroll floral pattern typical of the mid-19th century. A waist-high plexiglass barrier is in place about four feet into the room, creating a corridor that extends to your left. The room is wallpapered in a soft yellow with a red pattern of vertical oval shapes surrounding white floral shapes. 
On the right side of the room is a dark wood rocker upholstered in green fabric. A small green footrest is on the floor in front of the rocker. Just to the left and against the wall is a wood washstand topped with white marble. On it is a white ceramic bowl with a white ceramic pitcher resting within. A fringed washcloth hangs from a rail on a wooden accessory mounted on the wall. A highlight of the room is the long double bed positioned in the center and extending from the opposite wall toward the plexiglass barrier and corridor. It is neatly made with white sheets and two pillows in white pillowcases. The bed and headboard is fashioned from a dark wood. The top of the headboard is carved in intricate curls and twists, rising to a point at its center. To the left of the bed is an upholstered chair and a marble-topped circular table. On the table is a dark leather portfolio. Resting against the opposite wall behind the table is an attaché and gold-topped cane. On the floor near the bed is a white ceramic chamber pot. At the far left is a marble-topped dresser with small drawers on its surface and a wood-framed mirror rising above. On the dresser is a straight-edge razor, a shaving brush, comb, eyeglass case, and a figurine in the shape of a woman with a wide skirt. Three text panels are aligned on an angle at the top of the plexiglass barrier. In the center, the signage reads, Do not touch the artifacts. All items are protected by sound alarm and video surveillance. Violations will result in your removal from the building. Thank you. At the right, the panel is titled Lincoln Room Furniture and tells us that Abraham Lincoln slept in this bed on the night of November 18, 1863. Much of the other furniture was in this room on that night as well and would have been used by him as well. This bed was part of a large suite of furniture owned by David Wills and most likely made by a furniture maker in a major metropolitan area such as Baltimore or Philadelphia and shipped by rail to Gettysburg. Described by descendants as rosewood furniture, the pieces are actually made of mahogany and secondary woods and date to around 1855. The third panel at left, labeled 19th Century Style, notes that the furniture is typical of the Rococo Revival style popular in the mid-1850s. The bed, for example, is richly carved with florals and sea scrolls at the crest, characteristic of the style. The headboard is separated into sections with three arched panels that are slightly recessed. The scalloping on the mirror and wood surround of the bureau, as well as the C and S scrolls on the washstand, are also representative of the style. The Marseille spread on the bed is a reproduction of the original known to have been in the bedroom at the time of Lincoln's visit. The hung-in headboard of the bed actually would have been removed during the summer months and the bed itself adjusted in order to improve air circulation. Just behind you is a fireplace inset within the wall the bed faces. It contains a 19th century cast iron stove. It's framed in brick and a wood mantle painted light green. On the mantel is a clock encased in a wood chest that rises to a point like a steep roof. Mounted on the wall to the left is a framed print of a landscape. Facing the bed, please turn to your left and move through the second door in the room. It leads into the second floor hallway. Turn to your left 
for the next section of our tour, the Gettysburg Address. The Gettysburg Address, Part 1, approximately 4 minutes, 10 seconds. You're standing in a hallway with exhibits focused on the delivery of the address on November 19, 1863. On your left is a large plexiglass box that displays a wool saddle cover circa 1860. A caption card explains that, Abraham Lincoln used this saddle cover during the processional to the Soldiers' National Cemetery dedication on November 19, 1863. Charles W. Greist of York Spring, Pennsylvania, provided it to the President on the morning of November 19. Immediately to the right of the saddle cover display is a panel labeled November 19, 1863. Here is another grainy detail from the only known photo of President Lincoln on the speaker's platform, either before or after he delivered the Gettysburg Address. The president seems to be the hatless gentleman in the center of this detail. The text reads, November 19, 1863, was Gettysburg's most momentous day. It opened with an early morning 16-round artillery salute fired from Cemetery Hill. By 10 a.m., dignitaries were assembled outside of the Wills House for the procession to the new Soldiers' National Cemetery. Local reports estimated a crowd of 20,000 around the temporary speaker's platform in the adjacent Evergreen Cemetery. The ceremony began with music and an invocation by Reverend T.H. Stockton, chaplain of the United States Senate. Edward Everett's two-hour oration was followed by a funeral dirge, and then the president arose to deliver his few appropriate remarks. He spoke for about two minutes. The brevity of Lincoln's speech surprised many, but his words were long remembered. Below the text is an engraving from the popular Harper's Weekly. It depicts the dedication scene shortly after the event. A black-and-white photograph shows Cemetery Hill crammed with thousands of people on the day of the address. The Reverend H.C. Holloway was in attendance that day. In 1914, he remembered... As he began to speak, I instinctively felt that the occasion was taking on a new grandeur, as of a great moment in history. And then there followed, in slow and very impressive and far-reaching utterance, the words with which the whole world has long been familiar. On the opposite side of the hallway is another panel headed with the words, Edward Everett. The orator is pictured seated, examining a sheet of paper, he is clean-shaven, with a high forehead, his white hair slightly rumpled and swept back. The caption notes that... Edward Everett was the main speaker for the cemetery's dedication on November 19, 1863. The main text reads... Edward Everett was the most famous orator of his time. As a Harvard University president, U.S. congressman and senator, minister to Britain, governor of Massachusetts, secretary of state, and vice presidential candidate in 1860, he had lived a life of prestige and public service. His speeches were eloquent and in great demand. Everett's address lasted for nearly two hours. He did what 19th century America expected of him. He spoke at great length, made allusions to classical history, and recounted the three-day battle in great detail.
Reporters and others in attendance praised Everett's speech as a work of genius, but it has been forgotten by history, overshadowed by Lincoln's two minutes on the stage. At one time, Everett held Lincoln in low regard, but the president impressed him that day, and Everett wrote him afterward, I wish that I could flatter myself that I had come as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes. Indeed, a small portion of Everett's remarks are reproduced on the side of this tall panel. In tiny print, it takes up most of the space available. The Gettysburg Address, Part 2, approximately 4 minutes 50 seconds. Turn to your left and move about 10 feet past an open doorway on your right. You will come to the end of the hallway with a bench in the center that you may use. It sits in front of a translucent panel that stands in front of a window. Light from the window illuminates an etching of President Lincoln standing with a sheet of paper in his left hand. Printed on a placard on the panel is the Gettysburg Address. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it, far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note, nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. To the left is a display labeled, versions of the address. Two black and white photographs depict Lincoln seated around the time of the Gettysburg Address and the president with his secretaries, John Nicolay and John Hay, both young men. Also reproduced on this panel is a handwritten version of the address on three slightly raised placards. The caption tells us that, of the various written versions of the Gettysburg Address, the Bliss copy is considered the most faithful to Lincoln's words that day and is the only one with his signature. The body of the text on this panel reads, Five copies of the Gettysburg Address in Abraham Lincoln's handwriting are known to exist. After the consecration ceremony, he gave a draft to each of his secretaries, John Hay and John Nicolay.
Today, these are housed at the Library of Congress. Later, he wrote out three additional copies to be auctioned and sold to benefit the war effort. One of these is currently at the Illinois State Historical Society in Springfield, another at Cornell University, and the third inside the Lincoln Room at the White House. During the ceremony, reporters tried to take down the president's words as he spoke. Two of them, Charles Hale and Joseph L. Gilbert, knew shorthand and recorded accurate versions. The latter was also able to consult Lincoln's reading copy. Other accounts were less reliable. The Missouri Republican printed Lincoln's closing line as that the government for and of the people, born in freedom, might not perish from apathy. His actual closing line was, the government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Behind you, across the hall, to the right of the bench, is a panel titled, Reactions to the Gettysburg Address. Imprinted on the panel are the opening words of the Constitution. The adjacent placard features an artist's rendering of President Lincoln standing on the wooden platform from which he delivered the address, holding a sheet of paper, a table nearby, and a crowd of dignitaries behind him. At the base of the placard is a grainy photograph of Lincoln and several others at Gettysburg. The text states, Edward Everett was not the only person to offer his opinion of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Newspapers throughout the country covered the ceremony and the speeches. Some, such as the Chicago Times, criticized the president's remarks. The cheeks of every American must tingle with shame as he reads the silly, flat, and dishwatery utterances. Others, however, spoke highly of Lincoln's speech. The Springfield, Massachusetts Republican called it a perfect gem. Now, please move just to your right and then turn left into a large room for the next portion of our tour. The Gettysburg Address, Part 3, approximately 3 minutes, 40 seconds. This room is divided by a large panel into two areas. Walk forward about 10 feet to approach the panel. It has imprinted on it the image of the address in Lincoln's handwriting. On the left side of the panel is a placard that is titled, Significance of the Address. Its text reads... The Gettysburg Address became internationally and eternally famous for many reasons. Among them was Lincoln's powerful prose that succinctly and eloquently defined the meaning of the Civil War. By invoking the Declaration of Independence and its affirmation that all men are created equal, Lincoln reminded those who heard and would read his speech that this nation was founded not only on the principle of constitutional liberty, but also on the principle of human equality. The government of the people, by the people, for the people, had to survive. Lincoln's words and his hope for a new birth of freedom still resonate today throughout the world. To the right is a black-and-white painting of the Lincoln Speech Memorial, a curved structure that includes a bust of Lincoln at its center and two bronze plaques on either side. One is of the Gettysburg Address, and the other is Will's Letter of Invitation to the President. The memorial is located in the Soldiers' National Cemetery. And to the right of the photo is another sign with the words, A Brief but Immortal Speech. It is the title of a 10-minute documentary on the history and legacy 
of the most famous speech in American history, the Gettysburg Address. Please turn to your right and walk about ten feet on a slight diagonal to the right. An angled panel at about waist height features the exhibit Myths of the Gettysburg Address. It allows visitors to respond to five fact or fiction statements on the panel. Pressing a white button below each statement reveals the correct answer. From left to right, the statements and answers are Fact or Fiction Lincoln scribbled his address on the back of an envelope on the train to Gettysburg. Fiction Lincoln was a deliberate writer. Some of the ideas and phrases of the Gettysburg Address can be found within his other speeches and writings. He actually drafted the address in Washington on White House stationery and then revised and wrote out a clean copy here in the Will's house. Fact or Fiction The crowd at Gettysburg gave Lincoln the silent treatment, a cold and unfavorable response. Fiction Newspaper reporters present that day wrote that Lincoln's speech was interrupted at several points with applause and that the applause was prolonged and excited at his conclusion. Fact or Fiction No one really expected Lincoln to accept the invitation to come to Gettysburg. Fact Presidents rarely left Washington, D.C. in the early and mid-19th century. While a short one today, the trip to Gettysburg was time-consuming, and the ceremony came at a time in the war when Lincoln wanted and needed to be close to his communications. Fact or Fiction While a solemn occasion, Lincoln looked comical during the procession from the Wills House to the Soldiers' National Cemetery. Fact and fiction. Lincoln was a tall man and did look rather odd on most normal horses. This led to the myth that his feet scraped on the ground during the procession. Fact or fiction. I can stand on the very spot where Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address. Fiction. The wooden platform upon which Lincoln spoke was quickly disassembled after the program. Its location is part of the adjacent Evergreen Cemetery and is now filled with graves. The precise spot was not marked, and we know only its approximate location. From the angled fact or fiction display, please turn to your left and move several feet for the next portion of our tour. The Gettysburg Address, Part 4, approximately 7 minutes, 50 seconds. A touchscreen display on your right explores the words that comprise Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. A photo of Lincoln is on the first screen. Over this photo is a portion of Lincoln's handwritten text. On the next screen is one of the last photographs made of the president before his assassination. It reveals a rugged quality to the president's face, his cheeks sunken and eyes dark. Text informs us that... President Abraham Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address on November 19, 1863. The speech was 272 words long, a mere ten sentences. It probably lasted two to three minutes. The next screen features a portion of the Declaration of Independence next to the text... 
Lincoln's words interpreted. Four score and seven years ago. Four score and seven is another way of saying eighty-seven. A score is a measurement term for twenty, so four score means eighty. Adding seven years to that gives you eighty-seven. Our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Our fathers refers to the founding members of the United States of America. Specifically, the author and signers of the Declaration of Independence, which states that all men are created equal. The United States Constitution contains no such statement. Lincoln considered the Declaration to be the original founding document of the nation, establishing the principles it stood for. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated. Can long endure. The next screen features a photo of soldiers on a broad field. Text reads: The Civil War began in April 1861 with the firing on Fort Sumter, South Carolina. By the time of the Battle of Gettysburg, the war had been raging over two years. By war's end, approximately three million men were under arms. Many issues and events led to the war's start. But the primary cause was the failure to find a solution to the slavery issue. Next, we learned that the Civil War would determine if the United States would survive as one nation, and whether the principles of a democratic form of government could endure. It was also a test of the ideals of equality and liberty. Continuing, we are told that the largest single battle ever fought on the North American continent. The Battle of Gettysburg occurred on July first, second, and third, eighteen sixty-three. It involved over a hundred and sixty thousand soldiers and left behind fifty-one thousand casualties. Cemetery Hill, where Lincoln delivered the address, was a key federal position during the battle. Even today, cannons dot the cemetery landscape as a reminder of the fighting that took place there. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. The program continues. The Soldiers' National Cemetery was designed and dedicated as a final resting place for the Union dead at Gettysburg. In this sentence, Lincoln united all those who gave their lives in a common purpose. Their lives were sacrificed so that a nation dedicated to liberty, equality, and democracy could live on. The next screen reports that, at the time of the Civil War, the idea of a national cemetery was a new one. Typically, the dead were buried in temporary battlefield graves and remained there unless retrieved by family or friends or through the efforts of a state government. Lincoln made the long trip from Washington to participate in the cemetery's dedication ceremonies. As commander in chief, he felt a strong personal sense of responsibility for the suffering the war had caused. He wanted to use this occasion to restate the nation's war goals and give a sense of purpose to the sacrifices the nation had been asked to make. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here. Have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract.
The world will little note, nor long remember, what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. On the left side of this next screen is a drawing of the tall Lincoln, with arms spread, standing on a platform facing the throng assembled at Gettysburg. Text reads, Consecrate means to declare sacred or devote to a purpose. Dedicate means to devote to an honored person or cause. Hallow means to consecrate or honor as holy. The next screen puts the cost of the war into perspective. America's first three major wars, the American Revolution, War of 1812, and Mexican War, resulted in about 8,400 combat deaths. After just three days fighting at Gettysburg, there were 7,700 combat deaths. Next, text reads, Lincoln believed the actions and sacrifices of the soldiers, both living and dead, transcended the words he and others shared at the cemetery dedication. But Lincoln was also conscious of his audience that day. Governors from each of the represented northern states and members of the press who would transmit his words across the country. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. The text on the next screen asks, What unfinished work? Lincoln is referring to the importance of Union victory in the war, thus preserving a nation dedicated to the principles of the Founding Fathers. After the Battle of Gettysburg, the war continued for another 18 months. It ended unofficially on April 9, 1865, with the surrender of Confederate General Robert E. Lee to Lieutenant General Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia. An end to armed resistance was proclaimed on May 10, 1865. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolishing slavery was declared in effect on December 18, 1865. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. Next to an enlarged photograph of a penny with Lincoln's portrait on its back, text tells us that The cause Lincoln referred to was the struggle to preserve the Union and end American slavery, but it also spoke to his belief, grounded in the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, and that the struggle to fulfill this promise would continue after the war ended. That this nation under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. On the last screen, a photograph of a 1960s civil rights march is at left. The text at right reads, Lincoln spoke to the United States of 1863 as well as to the United States of the future. In 1863, a new birth of freedom meant the end of slavery, but it also referred to the liberation of the nation and to the promise of freedom and equal rights for all. Ever since, it has been a ringing declaration that all Americans should enjoy equal rights under a government created by the people for the benefit of all. 
Since Lincoln delivered this speech, our country has struggled to achieve these ideals. What can each of us do to ensure that the individuals who fought and died in the Civil War and in other American wars, or who have struggled for basic human rights and freedoms, did not do so in vain? Next, please turn to your left and move past the doorway on your right for the final section of our tour. The Gettysburg Address, Part 5, and Conclusion, approximately 4 minutes 45 seconds. To your left is the second portion of this room, a viewing area with several benches. It faces a three screen video program. Please note that the video program is motion activated and will begin as you enter the area. You may wish to pause your player while you enjoy the program. At the doorway, just before leaving this room, please turn to the left. A panel in this corner of the room features a watercolor drawing of Lincoln in profile against a field of blue with white stars. Below this image is text in Chinese. The drawing is by a Chinese artist and testifies to the universal nature of Lincoln's words. It depicts the Gettysburg Address written in Chinese. Also on display is a letter from Ronald Reagan, written to acknowledge the 125th anniversary of the address in 1988. The letter is addressed to the staff of Gettysburg National Military Park and urges readers to put Lincoln's words into practice. This display also includes a printed program for the 84th anniversary celebration of the Gettysburg Address in 1947. The actor Claude Rains signed the program. He performed a reading of the address as a part of the celebration. Finally, a commemorative plate is displayed. It features a gold floral border and a drawing of Lincoln, over which his address is printed as it appeared in the November 20, 1863 edition of the Gettysburg Gazette. Now, please turn back to the doorway and move through it. To the hallway where you arrived at the second floor. To your left, along the hallway leading to the restrooms, are several panels about the Wills house. On the left side is a panel labeled This Old House. It features a color aerial view of the area around the house circa 1950, a recreated diagram of the original layout of the house. And a black and white photo of the Wills House exterior as it appeared in 1976. The text on the panel informs us that This house was already nearly 50 years old when President Lincoln stayed here. Built in 1816 by Alexander Cobine, a prominent local businessman, it served at different times as a residence, store, tavern, and hotel before David Wills purchased the building in 1859. As his family and law business grew, Wills moved his law office to the house and converted a first floor store to a family parlor. After Wills' death in 1894, the house was remodeled by different owners for various commercial uses, including a re and Derrick drugstore, which occupied the first floor from 1936 to 1995. Efforts to establish a museum in the Wills' house began as early as 1916. But not until the summer of 1938 did the Lincoln Room open for tours. 
1945, local businessman John D. Lippy Jr., in partnership with building owner P.W. Stallsmith, opened an attraction on the second floor called the Lincoln Room Museum, which continued to operate under various owners until the fall of 2005. On the right side of the hallway is a panel titled The Wills Family Legacy Preserved. It notes that... Like many historic buildings in Gettysburg, the Wills House has undergone numerous alterations over the years, and in the process, the exterior walls, doors, windows, and almost every room of the interior have been modified. Fortunately, descendants and friends of the Wills family have carefully preserved original photographs, letters, books, furniture, and many other personal items that have made it possible to restore much of the 1863 appearance of the Lincoln bedroom and Wills law office. When David Wills died in 1894, most of his possessions were distributed among his four surviving daughters, Mary Wills Bridges, Annie Wills McCurdy, Jenny Wills Quimby, and Emma Wills McCammon. In the decades that followed, the daughters saved these items, aware of their significance, and looking ahead to a time when the house might become the property of the American people. Through the generosity of their descendants and friend of the Quimby family, many of these items have been returned. At the bottom of the panel is a black-and-white photograph of a room with stringed instruments hanging on one wall. Around the turn of the century, the room where Lincoln stayed served as a music store. The elevator to the first floor is several feet to your right and on the left. The staircase is a few feet further along. As you leave the staircase or elevator on the first floor, the welcome area and information desk will be to your right. This is where you will return your audio tour player. This concludes our tour of the David Wills House of the Gettysburg National Military Park. We hope you've enjoyed your visit and this Audio Described Tour. If you have any comments about this Audio Described Tour, we'd love to hear them. And if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to ask a staff member. You are cordially invited to explore the Visitor Center at the Gettysburg National Military Park. Our staff is happy to assist you in making plans for further visits. Thank you for visiting the David Wills House and the Gettysburg National Military Park.